Good morning. My name is Sterney Althaus, and I'm a counselor and life coach and member of the ACA. In my experiences with clients and my own research, I've come to learn from and appreciate those special people who have spoken about and written extensively on positive psychology and well-being through the lens of the Torah. In 1995, a good friend, Malki, gave me a baby gift, which changed my life forever in a huge way. It was Miriam Adahan's book, Raising Children to Care. The most important line to me that has been my mantra all through the years has been, I am doing the best I can with the tools I have in the current situation. I have a very great privilege today to welcome and talk to a very close friend and professional, clinical psychologist, Renee Mill. Renee, you've been an example to me and others in our community with your Emmet classes in Sydney and your many books on anxiety and CBT. Can you tell me about your background in psychology and specifically how you came to connect with Emmet? Sure, Sterney. Good morning to you and thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I also want to just compliment you for this initiative. I think it shows a lot of initiative and passion and especially what we're going through in Sydney now, it's really good to connect and to reach out. So thank you for, for doing this for our community. You know, when I was studying in the 1970s, the university I went to in Johannesburg, South Africa was very analytic. And if, I, if they knew today that I was a CBT um, expert and used a lot of it, they would actually be very, very condescending and critical because CBT was seen um, as not really the way to go. Sort of deep analysis was like the real orthodox Mahadran thing to do. Um, so that was my background. I was originally an occupational therapist, which is a very practical way of helping people get on with living. Then I went on to study psychology, as I say, in a very analytic way. And during this time in the 70s, I was also getting involved with the Torah way of life. So it was a very exciting time because there was this a whole lot of young, passionate people, academics who were becoming from and were trying to merge two worlds. We didn't come from a from background. And how do we merge this world of psychology and philosophy with Torah? And there were lots of discussions and ways of learning about it, but nothing that was that accessible. And then Miriam Adahan, who in my opinion is a genius, wrote her book, Emmet. It was the book before Raising Children to Care. And basically Torah psychology, she showed is really CBT. Because what is CBT? CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it's about changing your thoughts and changing your behaviors. So this is an intrinsic difference between analytic work and CBT kind of work. Analytic work and counseling is all about the way we used to work very much about creating a safe space and letting people come to their own conclusions, however long it took and however long you needed to stay stuck in a particular position. And I'm not by any means criticizing it, and I still do short-term psychodynamic work. But what my occupational therapy background showed me is that sometimes one has to just move and we have to get going and we have to change ourselves, which is very much a Torah way. Torah is about 
Nasi Vanishma, just do it. Just do the right thing. Just act even if sometimes you don't feel like it. And as I say, these two worlds are completely different. An analyst would say, that's terrible. You must go with what you feel. So this book, Amit, really showed that Torah and the way Torah thinks actually is CBT, or the two are combined. Obviously, Torah came first. And she made Torah very accessible by combining it with CBT and showing that we can change our thoughts. And so I used to give a shear and someone gave me the book and said, have a look at this book. And I read it and I thought, being my practical self, wow, this is a practical book, a practical psychology book. And so actually Torah and Emmet is what got me into the whole world of CBT, not my university studies. And here I am. I think I started in 1989. And I believe when I last saw Miriam Adahan in Israel, that I'm the last remaining Emmet teacher in the world. And I, until COVID, I was running three groups a week. Wow. Well, your groups are so well known and respected in the community. I know there are waiting lists to get in. And um, I know that you also ran Emmet groups in South Africa. How is it different to the Australian Emmet groups? Or are there things that you can connect between the two groups? Um, no, I don't think there's any difference. I think people are people. Um, I think, you know, we say the examples are different. So um, I'm laughing at myself as well. The kind of examples a South African young mother might have brought, truthfully, was that the maid didn't pitch up one day and we had to clean up after ourselves. And that was like, we don't have those examples in Australia. We have other examples. So it can be applied to everybody, just the kind of example you bring. But Emmet is about a process. So the example is actually relevant. It's what we felt when something happened. And so you just mentioned the example in passing, the maid didn't arrive, or I got stuck in traffic, or my child failed at school, doesn't matter what it is. The focus on Emmet is our response to what the event is. So can I ask, I understand that Emmet stands for emotional maturity through Torah. Do you think that's still relevant? I mean, the word maturity and emotional maturity, how does that tie in with our world today currently? With all technology? Never, been, never ever been more relevant. We just use a different word. We now talk about emotion regulation. So if anybody knows, the psychology world is full of emotion dysregulation and how to teach people to emotionally regulate. We just don't call it maturity. And I think it's because, you know, we're more sensitive that it has an implication that if you're immature, it doesn't have a, a nice ring. Whereas if you say you're emotionally dysregulated, it has a different feel to it. But sure. really it's exactly the same. And people still need to learn how to emotionally regulate. Absolutely. And may I ask, do you think that in today's times with technology, whether it's younger people or families, do you notice that there have been dips in that regulation because people aren't as socially connected this, in this day and age? I don't know. It could be because one of the things about emotion regulation is the ability to delay gratification. The whole idea about it is you just want to grab that chocolate or yell at somebody or break something or however you emotionally dysregulate. And you've got to be able to pause and then think through what you really should be doing. Mm -hmm. So I think with technology, there has been a lot of instant gratification, which might have made it worse. But I think there are other reasons. And that is because generally our world is about 
entitlement, instant gratification. People aren't taught the value of waiting. People aren't taught the, the value of things being a process. Um, I'll just give you an example that just came into my mind is that, you know, we talk about why there's so many divorces today. And one of the common things given on older people will say is young people don't know how to stay in marriages. And I'm not criticizing anybody, but the difference is I once learned a Hasidic thing that it says it takes 30 years for a couple to feel that oneness that we talk about. And so there's an example where it takes time. It takes the ability to pause. It takes the time to have patience. Sometimes it takes self-sacrifice. And we're not teaching people that mm-hmm. in the secular world. So it really is relevant. And I'm wondering, based on what you said and taking it on the tangent, you know, where you discussed about the patience and the delayed gratification, would you be able to give us three points from Emmett that we can take away to help us in our relationships, particularly in marriage? Well, the one that you said, um, you know, that I'm doing the best I can in the situation, we can also use with our spouses. And that is, we call it either depersonalize or giving the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, people walk into the kitchen and there's a dirty coffee mug on the sink. And, you know, the wife will say, you're so selfish and you know how tired I am. And it becomes personal. You are selfish. And in a way we're saying, you could have done it differently, but you didn't and you're hurting me. Whereas when one walks in and goes, he's doing the best he can with the tools that he has. And we go, he was probably tired. He probably forgot. He wasn't thinking about it. Then we take away the personal. Now, it doesn't mean we don't sit down and say, honey, let's talk about the coffee cup. I don't want it there. We don't not solve problems, but it was out that feeling of if you loved me and you did it, it's, it's that. So that's a huge one. It's giving the benefit of the doubt. And it's less personal. So it's not like an attack. It's that's more, right. let's that's solutionize. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very rare that people, unless they're psychopathic, are actually out to hurt us, especially the people that love us. They don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, how am I going to upset my wife today? I know I'm not going to wash the coffee cup. None of us think like that. So it's about going, we all, I always say, we're all bumbling along and we all, as you said, we're doing the best we can and we all get tired and we all get stressed and we all forget and so on. So that's important. And the other thing I want to add with this is, when you do it, when you forget something, just put it in your memory and go, it was so easy. I actually wasn't thinking. So therefore, the next time someone lets you down, you go, I can do it and they can do it. It's quite human. That's actually really interesting because you know how the Baal Shem Tov says when you see something bothering you in someone else, you have to examine yourself. Mm. It does tie in with Hasidus because you know we all make mistakes and Next time I might forget to put the coffee mug away or whatever, forget to pick up the dry cleaning, you know, in whatever situation that yeah. comes up. But um, so far we've spoken about two really important tools, you know, the depersonalization and the, uh, you know, knowing that everyone's doing the best that they can, not just ourselves, but everyone around us is going through some struggle that we don't understand and they're doing the best they can. So we don't take things personal. That's I'm right. wondering if there's a third tool that stands out in your mind from the Emmet groups that you can um, share with us that we can apply in a practical way. Well, a big one is um, I'm going to combine two, and that is that the one is 
that I am not going to evade responsibility for myself. But the other one is I'm also not going to take excessive responsibility for other people's behavior. So women are well known for taking excessive responsibility for our husbands, for our children. They're having a hard time and we take more and more on ourselves. And sometimes we actually have to go and go, that's excessive. This is my responsibilities up to here and the rest is up to them. But the other side we're also not good at is that we sometimes evade responsibility for ourselves. So this brings, you know, when we actually have to learn to say no, where we actually have to learn to have self-care, where we actually have to say we have to do what is good for us in this moment. So, so can I stop you on that? Yeah. On the self-care, because I think that's a really important buzzword, especially in lockdown and especially in these times. Can you give us some practical examples of self-care? you know, apart for, you know, in the old days when shops were open and people can go out to have a drink with a friend, what can people do during lockdown or in challenging times when you can't really socialize with other people for self-care? Right. So I actually did a course on Sunday through the APS on self-care for psychologists. And they had a few different models, but the one that I really liked, they called the three R's. So it's routines, rest, and relationships. Beautiful. And I thought that sums it up very well. So the one thing is keep your routines. Get up at the same time, get dressed, um, work for a few hours, have lunch. Whatever you would normally do, don't hang around in bed or change. Whatever you can do in routine, you should keep your, all your routines, your sleep routines, everything. Routines very much part of good mental health. Rest. So just because you're at home, this is where we get to excessive. Don't just work all day. Have a routine, work your eight hours, and that's it. And you need to rest enough. And rest means switching off. And this, again, is where the Torah way comes in when we talk about switching off. If one learns how to switch off on Shabbos or Yontav, switching off means there are times we focused on work, and then there are times we focused on the third R, which is relationships. Very important that we maintain our relationships. So we have Zoom, we have FaceTime. We need to make sure, book in chats with our friends, groups if we have them, not to become isolated because we tend to cocoon and just feel funny. This is what I've been feeling and people telling me like, everyone keeps saying it feels like we're in a post-apocalyptic world. And so you want to just feel funny and you just want to lie on your bed. So you actually need to, Book it in, book in work time, book in social time. And those are the three R's. That's beautiful. And it's so practical, Renee, I love it. So can I ask, um, with all the advancements in mental health, <coughs> excuse me, and the stigmas removed, why are people struggling so much? Look, I think people have always struggled. And I think what we're going through now, you know, makes me think about what people have gone through over the years. And I think this idea that there's every time we're not going to struggle in itself causes stress. So if it's not one thing, it's the other. If it wasn't, you know, the GFC, it's a housing crisis, or it's, God forbid, you know, a building collapse, or it's a war, or there's always something. So I think people have always struggled. I think what we what has made it harder, and I once heard this from someone who saw the river, it must have been in the 1980s, 
Yeah. And she was a very well-known social worker in South Africa. And I heard this from her at a share. She said the Rebbe told her that we were, and that was in the 80s, we were worse off than people who, in one way, in one way, that people went through the war because of the families. The families aren't together like we used to be. There isn't the cohesiveness in families. And we've got to work much, much harder at that. So kids leave quickly, then we don't communicate, we're back to the screens, all kinds of things. That's a big thing. We don't have that family kind of security that we used to have. That's a big thing. <clears throat> and the second thing, which actually, which brings me back to CBT and Emmet, is one of my criticisms of CBT and why I've developed my own method, which is very tied into Emmet. If you're a purist of CBT, what you will do is, let's say you come in and you're stressed and I'll say, Sterni, what is your hot thought? And you'll go, well, when my child does this, I think this. And then I go, okay, now I want you to think of an alternate thought. Now, you won't be able to think of much of an alternate thought because you're stuck in your way of thinking that if my child loved me, they would clean up their mess. And I'm saying, well, think of a different way of looking at it. Whereas if I say to you the Emmet tool is depersonalized, your child's just being a typical 14-year-old, then I'm giving you a way of thinking. So a very big difference is the Torah gives us hashkofa. It tells us how to think. It tells us when we're going through a hard time, how we should see the world. So one of the Emmet tools, I'll just throw it, throw it in, is the first one is I'll make Hashem's will my will. This is what Hashem wants for me. When you're in the secular world and you've got no framework and you believe the world is random or there's not even a God or what, what good could there be in this? Or it's, you know, you, you've got double problems. You don't know how to think about it and you've got the problem. So the beauty of Emmet is it teaches you how to think right. That's beautiful. And it's all from the Torah. And that's what we have. And that's what we need to tap into every day, but also obviously more during difficult times. And it's so beautiful that the Torah core values can be put in such a way that is a practical way for people, not just who understand the Torah ways, but out in the world can glean messages and lessons from our Torah for their thought processes. That's right. Well, most of the people, two out of my three groups, all those women are not Orthodox, but they all believe in Hashem and they bring Hashem into their world and it helps them cope. Um, and people, there are a lot of people who naturally feel comforted to actually believe this is meant to be, and it's good, even if I don't see the good right now, um, all those kind of things. And they don't have to, as I say, think of alternate thoughts because the Hashem tells us how to think. He gives and us. Also, the I noticed when you're talking about our thoughts, how it, for myself as a Hasidic person, someone who aspires to be, you know, studying and learning Hasidut, the whole concept of thinking positive thoughts and tracht good that sign good, thinking good thoughts and changing the reality and the connection with Hashem that we actually do make a difference with our thoughts and our thoughts do produce results. It's not just, you know, it's not just uh, something that's like luftgeschäft, it's something that we can actually apply and change our thoughts and the way you look at it. And like you say, it depersonalizes difficult situations. Um, and I wonder, you mentioned you're one of the last Emmet groups still running in the world. Why do you think this is so? I mean, this is such valuable information. 
I'm sure people would want to continue carrying on Miriam's messages through groups, but do you find that it's relevant um, around the world? I'm sure it's very relevant. I think one of the reasons is, you know, the thing about the Emmet group, and I want to tie it up with something you just said, is that it's a sheer, and at the end of the sheer, people need to bring examples. It's work. So a lot of people will learn Hasidus or they'll learn beautiful ideas, but they don't know how to bring it into their lives. With Emmet, it's a four-step process. And through practicing it, you learn how to do it. So a lot of people, interestingly enough, don't like it. They'll come to my share once or twice, and then they don't want to come. They, they would love to just listen to the theory. And I'm very strict at saying, you know, if you come, you have to at some point bring an example because it's actually doing it that's going to make the difference. So I think in that's my experience. I can't talk for the whole world. Um, that people love the theory. They'll listen to Shirim. It's a very different thing to actually practice it. And I suppose the other thing, like all things in life, you know, Miriam moved on. She's like developed all kinds of other things. And, you know, unless people actually kept going, you know, things are the flavor of the month or the decade, you move on. It's just that because for me, I had such wonderful groups and such commitment. I mean, my one group, actually both of my groups in Sydney, you know, the one's been going for 17 years. And actually the other one, when I moved to Sydney in 1997, was the only, I said, I'm not working for six months. I'm going to settle my kids. But Fruma asked me to do something and I said, okay, I'll do an Emmet group. So actually as I got off the plane, that was the only thing I did. So since 97, I've been running a group here in Sydney. So that's also my personality. I found something that's really worked and, and effective and I'm passionate about it. But with no criticism, people move on and, you know, for all different reasons. I've actually recently heard Miriam speak at a workshop and um, it was brilliant. And she's still tied in a lot of the concepts that we learned about. Um, but I think now, you know, with computer and Skype and online workshops, she's taking it online. Um, and the nature of the way the world is, there are other issues as well that, that she's dealing with as well in her health. But can you tell me, um, now that we discussed this beautiful, I guess, secret called Emmet, because it's not as widely known around the world as it should be at this stage, um, how can we get people to, if you marry and what you talk about, you know, your anxiety solutions and how do we get people to reverse their course and stop their worry, their anxiety are there tools from Emmet that we can use for anxiety? Yes, it's a four-step process. Okay. It could be any, anything that needs to be regulated. Depression, mm -hmm. anxiety. I mean, people will be sitting there going, not clinical depression, but, and I'll tell you why I'm adding that in. So it's anything. It's about this is what I'm feeling. And then suddenly I realize I've got a choice. I can stay stuck with the anxiety or I can. And then walk up to like 27 or 30 tools. So it's that process that can help you move on. So it's like a journey that you take with uh, the ladies at your workshops. Well, eventually I tell everybody and I do it myself. You know, you can do an Emmet group example every day. It's part of my life. If I'm feeling stressed about something, mm -hmm. I pull out a worksheet and I do it. I don't just think about it in my head. I work through it and going through the steps keeps me balanced because it reminds me of how to think and how to work through a process. So can I ask if that's okay? We talked about relationships within family. We talked about the spouse. What about at the workplace? Can we 
tie in our Emmet theories in the workplace with our coworkers, with our colleagues. Can you give an example of a workplace scenario where um, somebody might use one of these tools? Well, an example will be that um, it stops you from becoming angry. So um, I'll give you a personal example that we, I had someone who made a really big error once and she um, it cost me about two and a half thousand dollars, which is a huge sum of money. And I just immediately went, it's a kapora, it's from Hashem. What do I have to learn out of it? And, and while mentioning it, it's not that I don't struggle, but I remember doing it. But I met her mother about a year later and she walked up to me and she said, Renee, do you never get angry? And I went, of course I do. And she said, I want to thank you. My daughter was beside herself and you never said anything to her. And I didn't. I just immediately went, you know, wow. what can I, the, the buck stops, I'm the owner of this business I have to. So there are lots of times when we get angry with people, they're not doing what we want. Again, it doesn't mean you don't solve the problem. It never happened again. But anger is a big one, learning a peaceful way of communicating, um, bringing humor into the situation. So it sounds like it gives a person control, actually, that's more it. control. That's what emotion regulation is, absolutely. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. And Renee, may I just ask, in your personal life, you know, I'm curious to know, with raising children, have you found that this Emmet has been transmittable to the next generation? You've got grandchildren now. I'm curious to know if your children find it relevant. I don't know. We have to ask them. I mean, they <laughs> often tell me that <laughs> they often tell me that they think about things I've said, or I'll, I'll tell them something and they'll go, oh, we heard that from you before. I've never, and I'm very big on saying it's, we can never change anybody else. So, you know, I hope I've never sat my kids down and said, now this is what you, how you have to feel or how you have to behave. Um, I would like to think that they saw me managing a lot of my emotions better. Mm -hmm. um, I think you would have be the judge of that, you know, how they manage themselves. A lot of it is role modeling. Yeah. You know, if you manage, if you contain yourself, you Well, I want to tell you something beautiful that happened last week. Um, I, I didn't ask your daughter for permission, but I'm sure it's such a positive nachos for you that I'd like to share it with you. So your daughter is a teacher in our school. And my child and another child came first. They tied in a Chumash competition. And your daughter, Maura Dina, is the most incredible teacher. My son says the Chumash is so much fervor and passion and excitement walking around the house. It's beautiful. And he said to me, mommy, Maura Dina asked me, do I want to be a leader? And I said, what do you mean? What happened? He said, my friend and I tied at the same time, but I let him go first. And Maura Dina said to me, you are being a leader. And the pride on his face when he said, mommy, I'm a leader, it was worth everything, the being Mavatar giving in to his friend to go first, even though he came first as well. The fact that he learned a tool in year three, so he's eight years old, about being a leader and being Mavatar for the bigger picture, I think that's something, it's, it's, really it brought pride to to me for my child it it just shows how well i mean you may not know the story now you do mm. but how much you've transmitted to your own children i think it's a so really i'll tell you what the tool is with that there are a few but one of them is in emmet you learn to endorse now your son did well but the idea is that you endorse for effort not success 
So I've always focused on the character traits rather than the, the result. And it's that, as I say, your son did actually come first, but even if they come, it doesn't matter where they come, you find that character trait or something about them that he will always wear that feeling. I am a leader. And when you say you are kind or that shows you are generous or that shows you're on, you know, you have initiative, we carry that much more than well done. You've got a hundred percent. So yes, that makes me very proud. Yeah. So you know that it's transmittable. And yeah. even if, uh, you know, sometimes it comes out years later, but yeah. other people are benefiting from that. So I want to thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and may I also ask you, Renee, one more question um, before we close, you know, what you're doing is so important and so necessary. Would you ever consider running a teenager's MET group? Do you think teenagers would be open to learning tools, you know, for social life, for their emotional regulation? They're going into life now, they need tools. Sometimes we come in, you know, already as moms much later on in the piece. But if we would start this process earlier for teenagers, I think we'd avoid a lot of problems later on. Well, let me answer you in a roundabout way. So I, based on Emmet and years of decades of doing Emmet, my anxiety treatment, which is also, it's really an emotion regulation um, treatment, which I started off when we used to call it emotional intelligence in the 90s. And now it's become an anxiety, but the four steps are there. Um, and so I teach the four steps all the time in my practice and I have trained psychologists to do it as well. We have someone in my practice who's running a group now with teenagers and they absolutely love it. It's a small group, there are four of them, but they absolutely love it. But it doesn't have, let me just think, it, does, it definitely has tools, like depersonalize is a tool, but it doesn't have the, it doesn't bring Hashem into it mm-hmm. because it's, it's for everybody. If people want to, there's one that talks about a spiritual tool. So why am I saying all of this? I think teenagers do love it if they're in the right group. I just think that one has to be careful because in my experience, teenagers, that's the age where they're sort of rebelling and questioning. So one has to do it in a way that they not feel they're being brainwashed into Yiddishkeit, but that they have an option to choose it, but they're also learning to emotionally regulate. So that's what I found has worked. Sure. And can I ask you, can you share with the audience the names of your books um, I've seen one with beautiful cartoons. I actually brought it home, left it on the table and found it in one of my children's room and they were writing, oh, yes. which is beautiful. Just curious if you can share the names of your books, if people want more information. Sure. So my, my, my self-help manual is called Anxiety Free Drug Free and it's available in Amazon and in all good bookstores. And that's what I'm a proud was a 2016 bestseller. So there were yes, Australians sir. who used it. And the big thing about emotion regulation, not everyone needs a psychologist. They can actually work through it themselves through the book. Um, and then I have three parenting books. The one is, my original one was called No Sweat Parenting, where I take six myths that, short, that parents have, like I've got to be a perfect parent is one, um, and I debunk those myths. Then there's one called You Can't Push My Buttons. So it's, again, related to the depersonalized when we go, My child knows just how to push my buttons. So it's, you know, learning how to take responsibility. And then the third one, which is is called um, Parenting Without Anger. It's all about really self. So what I found is that parents, including myself, you know, you can know what you should be doing. But if you get angry or you're emotionally dysregulated, you can't put your knowledge 
into action. And that's why emotional regulation is the key to actually performing well. We can have all the knowledge in the world, but it's practicing how to take that knowledge, not let our anger, our upset, our low self-esteem, anything get in the way to doing what we know is the right thing. So it's in anger without parenting, how to do that. Beautiful. And I understand with the four-step process that, you know, it's work and people have to put the work in. Is there like a takeaway message from your four-step process that we can well, it's not a lot of work. It takes three minutes to fill out the worksheet. So the first step is, the takeaway message is when something happens to you, take a minute to go, okay, someone caught, cut me off on the road. And then you know what, what are, you t- need to spend a minute to reflect on what does that make me feel? And do I want to go and overeat? Is it making me feel stressed? Am I clenching my jaw? There's a whole, and then you go, okay, I now have a choice to move forward. What's going to help me move forward? So one might be, this is a trivial event. They cut me off. My day is not going to change. I'm not going to put any more energy into it. And then the fourth step is always about endorsing yourself. You know, look, I actually made an effort. I've changed. In the past, I would have been steaming the whole ride home. And this way, after two minutes, I was relaxed and listening to my music. So the takeaway is it's actually very quick and easy, but it's to always first validate what you feel, but then you have a choice to move on. And I want to add one more thing, if I can have a commercial break. And that is that I'm actually developing an app at the moment with the four steps. Beautiful. So that's going to be um, the digital version. That'd be lovely and so practical right there on our phones. We can just do the four steps immediately. And may I ask, do we um, give ourselves a tick? How do you uh, add up all your points for effort? How does it work? Is there a reward? Does that tie into any of your work where you have to reward the effort? The reward is the self-respect you get, which is always the best type of reward. It's an intrinsic Mm -hmm. reward. You get self-respect when you behave in in a mature way. And I'll use the old-fashioned word. You know, when you actually don't scream at your kids or you're actually kind to your husband and say, please, can we work out the coffee cup? You feel like a mensch and that's your reward. You go, wow, that was worth it. Beautiful. Wow. Well, Rena, you've definitely given us lots of tools and lots of things to think about and digest. I can't wait to see your app. And um, let us know so we can update our audience. And um, those wonderful books. I think I want to go get the books about pushing buttons. It sounds really good. I've read all your other books. They're great. And um, I also want to thank at this point, Miriam Adahan for her beautiful work she brought to the world and how much it's enhanced the world. And look how much you've taken from it and made even something even bigger from it you know, you've developed it further. And that's a huge thing. And it's a credit to you and to Miriam and to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for bringing us to the point where we can actually marry the Torah to popular, uh, to psychology so we can bring it out to the world and give our Torah thoughts and actually be the leaders of the world with Torah thoughts. So thank you for that. And may Hashem bless you with Koach and all your work. And I'm hoping we get to catch up again in the future to do a part two so thank you again and well done for you all the best to you and everything thank you thank you okay bye-bye